This is episode 11 of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Morris. Welcome to the show. Let's get started. Well, welcome back to the show. I am Kevin Morris, and I'm so glad you're here with me for episode number 11 of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. And in case you're wondering what in the world that music was, that was just a little bit of fun I wanted to have to mix things up, get a little bit of a different intro going than the normal one. And that kind of was a little bit of Lord of the Rings meets club music, in my opinion. I thought it was kind of funny. So there you go. Well, Today, in our episode, I wanted to continue our discussion, which we've been having for the last several episodes, about the writing styles of the Bible. And if you're interested in going back to those previous episodes, you can find me at betterbiblereading.com. That'll get you to the homepage. You'll be able to see all the tabs and all the different sections on the website, including previous episodes of the podcast blog posts, and free training that I'd like to offer to you. I'd like to tell you a little bit about that um, and as it relates uh, somewhat to this episode as well. Um, but if you're interested in that, you can find me, again, betterbiblereading.com, or if you're interested in finding the show notes to this particular episode, simply go to betterbiblereading.com forward slash episode 11. All right. Well, our previous couple episodes, we've been talking about writing styles of the Bible, and today's episode, we will continue that conversation, and for this particular episode, I want to talk about the writing style of quoting verses, maybe a better way to describe that, to kind of get behind or underneath or around kind of the full scope of what I mean when I say that is the way that the New Testament quotes or cites verses from the Old Testament. You'll find that to be a inescapable reality as you read um, virtually every book in the New Testament. And those of us who have grown up in a church context and especially if you haven't grown up in a church context, odds are your exposure has been much more with the New Testament of the Bible as opposed to the Old Testament. Now, that's kind of a big deal because the New Testament, not that it's necessarily a competition of uh, whichever has the more words is the more important, but it is uh, interesting that we might think about this for just a moment because, you know, the Old Testament has twice as much material as the New Testament. If you were to divide the Bible up, it would be two-thirds Old Testament, just a rough mathematical uh, fraction here, two-thirds Old Testament, one-third New Testament. And you can see this to be the case, especially if you're in the middle of a Bible reading plan uh, to get through the Bible in a year. If you're not going by uh, X amount of books of the Bible to complete every month or something like that, you can actually get through the Bible, uh, roughly speaking, by reading two chapters in the Old Testament and one chapter in the New Testament every day. And that'll get you almost precisely, not quite, but almost precisely uh, through the Bible in one year. For those of you who've been following uh, all of these episodes, you might have actually remembered uh, Jesse Pickett mentioned that way back in episode two of this podcast when we talked about Bible study, and he mentioned uh, one of the ways you could read the Bible is to do that division, two chapters in the Old Testament, one chapter in the New Testament every day to get through the Bible in a year. So the reason that that all matters is because when we're talking about the New Testament using the Old Testament, we don't want to dismiss that and say, yeah, well, I mean, Sure, they're citing verses or quoting verses from the Old Testament, but the Old Testament's kind of like a irrelevant thing now, isn't it? I mean, we have the New Testament, new means good, bad means old, and of course we've covered that whole concept on this uh, podcast as well. Well, we don't want to think that way, especially when we're saying that 
two-thirds of the entirety of our Bible, if we're going by fractions, suddenly doesn't matter or becomes insignificant. That would be crazy to say that. And that gets me thinking about my frustration of so many uh, Christian bookstores and others that offer a New Testament-only Bible. It makes me literally want to rip my skin off because I can't fathom how we could suddenly pitch having both the Old and the New Testament that here's here's really all you need to know. Here's the New Testament by itself. Here's a New Testament-only Bible. And I just – I don't like that. It's such a terrible – concept. I maybe get there's could be some good intentions behind it, but I just see that as largely unhelpful. Bibles are so accessible. To me, there's no possible reason why we should sell New Testament-only Bibles when we want the whole Bible. We want we don't want to say, well, let's cut out two-thirds of it and give you the one-third that really matters. And I hope that you'll understand, if I sound like I'm ranting, that I'm not making some random rant here, but I'm really talking about the way that the Old Testament and the New Testament relate and connect to one another, and one of the ways that the New Testament writers saw this as an inescapable reality was by quotations, quoting verses from the Old Testament in their New Testament writing. So this concept of writing styles, you might not think of that necessarily as a writing style, right? Because we think about genre, we think about uh, whether something is kind of written as an imperative, right? A do this, a commandment, or just a practical advice, or uh, just kind of deep theology that might not necessarily seem practical, right? Those seem more like writing styles in the Bible. But this particular one is a writing style. And in fact, um, this particular episode, I want to show you three ways that quoting verses from the Old Testament is in fact a writing style, and there's not just a one-size-fits-all when it comes to quoting Old Testament verses. Um, I see at least three different methods or uses or writing styles of doing this that we see happen in the New Testament, and as readers of the Bible, we want to do a better job of catching on when these kinds of writing styles are happening. We want to have a good interpretive reflex in our minds, our eyes, as the words pass uh, across our eyes on every page of Scripture. We want to know, we want to see what's happening so that we can better understand and interpret what we're reading. So let's walk through these three. And the three that I want to talk to you about in this episode is the use of quotations as fulfillments as the word I've been using kind of as a as a heading to this quotations that might sound redundant but I'll explain and then thirdly and finally allusions not i but a allusions so we'll walk through those one at a time and you can find these really in multiple places in the Bible, but especially because most people who listen to podcasts are not uh, in a um, situation where you can just get your Bible and start looking at it right now. Um, I want you to be safe as you drive or whatever you're doing that probably requires your hands. Um, and just go to the show notes of this episode. You'll be able to find these, but hopefully – um, I'm not going to just call out verses. I'm just going to call out books and chapters, and that will maybe help you uh, memorize these until you can get to a place where you can actually see them and read them for yourself. All right. So the first one I want to talk about is fulfillments. Fulfillments is a method of quoting uh, the Old Testament into the New Testament, and we can really go no further than the very first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, where you see this happening. So in the Gospel of Matthew, you really have the case being made that Jesus is the fulfillment of a promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One um, that God had promised He's the fulfillment of that promise. He is the Messiah. He is the promised Christ. And one of the ways that Matthew likes to lay out his case throughout 
the gospel is by this language that we see scattered throughout Matthew. You see it again and again and again. And I want to just call out a couple of these um, so that you can see them. The very first one happens um, in Matthew chapter 1. You'll find this in verse 22. In verse 22, the reality of Jesus' birth is being told to Joseph, and in that section of Scripture, this is what is said uh, concerning Mary. So Joseph is being talked to by an angel here and mentions this about his soon-to-be wife, who he is engaged or betrothed to, says this, "'She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus.'" for he will save his people from their sins. All right, so so far we're kind of in uh, the writing style of a narrative, right? We've already kind of talked about this and covered this. Uh, so far, Matthew's kind of a narrative. You just see the, the main characters presented to us. Uh, you see the story unfolding. And then Matthew kind of interjects as the writer, as the author here, and says this in the next verse. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then what happens in the very next verse? The very next verse says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this is where we have the occurrence of fulfillment language. You heard that, right? The, the, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken of by the prophet. There's that very explicit signal for us as readers, oh, this is a fulfillment. And then I won't say 100% of the time, but let's just say nine times out of 10, there, there could be exceptions I'm not aware of, but nine times out of 10, when you hear a phrase such as, this took place to fulfill this, it almost always follows by, an Old Testament verse being cited. In this case, it happens in the very next verse, verse 23 of Matthew chapter 1, and it is from Isaiah chapter 7, where it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I want to kind of uh, tease out something that really could be... um, an episode in and of itself because it really is a massive topic. And um, I probably will um, get into this in more depth uh, later on down the road. But I do want to mention at this point that not all Bibles are created equal. Before you turn this podcast off because of uh, thinking that I am suddenly guilty of blasphemy, let me explain what I mean. I certainly don't mean that Some Bibles are more important than others, okay? But what I do mean is that not all Bibles are designed and structured and formatted in the same exact way. Not every Bible carries a one-to-one ratio of the way that they are comprised and set up for readers. For example, I really like the English Standard Version, the ESV translation of the Bible, and I have at least, off the top of my head, four different kinds of ESV Bibles. If you read my very first blog post on my website of the six essential steps of better Bible reading, you will know that I am certainly an advocate of having more than one Bible. I think the more Bibles you have, the better, because different translations and different types of Bibles have different things to offer us as readers. And one of the reasons I have four different Bibles of the same translation is because all four of them have a different purpose, a different uh, goal in mind uh, in their use. So I have the ESV Study Bible, which is, as the name hints at, a study Bible. It has study notes. It has uh, commentary written on the, on the bottom of each page. It has maps it has kind of theological essays. It has a really good concordance, right? it's, and it's a thick, heavy Bible. It's a study Bible, and that's what its purpose is for. I also have an ESV thin line Bible. Now, this 
has just a very short glossary, but outside of that, it's basically just the Bible in kind of its its bare bones. Okay, it does have uh, chapters, verses, and uh, subtitles for sections, uh, but other than that, it really is just here's each book of the Bible, plain and simple. I also have an ESV wide margin Bible. And that's actually the one that I'm looking at in front of me. And what's unique about this is that it's kind of a uh, user commentary Bible or a user study Bible. What that means is if you're a note taker, this particular Bible has wide margins so you can jot notes beside uh, the verses. You can highlight as you see fit. You can come up with a system of your own. That's what I do. I'd love to talk to you about that later, so um, kind of press me a little bit, if you will, if you're interested in that, and I will be glad to go ahead and get that episode out uh, sooner rather than later because that is a something that's really important to me, and I'd love to talk to you more about that, but we don't have time in this particular episode. Um, and then fourthly and lastly, in the, the four different kinds that I have at least, I have also an ESV Bible that is um, – I don't actually know that the uh, the name of it in particular it's it's kind of a basic Bible but the difference is it's like my thin line Bible but the font is bigger it's it's not called a large font Bible because it's not necessarily la- large or giant print but it is larger than my thin line Bible and one of the things that it also has that my thin line Bible does not have is a cross reference system. That really gets us to uh, this conversation because one of the things that a cross-reference Bible has, most Bibles nowadays are cross-reference Bibles. And one of the one of the easiest ways you can you can tell right off the bat whether your Bible is or not is if in the verses that you're reading you see little um, letters of the alphabet designated kind of in between words or above words. So, for example, as I read Matthew one twenty three, that citation uh, that we mentioned earlier <clears throat> that says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. In front of that very first word, behold, I have a small letter D. Now, if I go to my little cross-reference guide at the bottom of my page and find that D, what that D tells me, it says this. Cited from Isaiah 7.14. Now, sometimes you don't have to look at the letter to at least know that the Old Testament is being cited. But this is one of the reasons why I really like cross-referencing, because I have found in my reading and studying of the Bible that there are times where an Old Testament citation or quotation is not as apparent in some places as it is in others. So if your Bible was not formatted formatted kind of in a paragraph style, you might read this and say, verse, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Then read verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now maybe you will know that there's a clear quotation from the Old Testament, but maybe you don't know that. Maybe you don't realize that. Well, a cross-reference grid or system is going to call your attention to the fact, hey, this is a quotation from the Old Testament. Now, what I do is when that happens, I write in my wide margin Bible off to the side, I write what verse is in uh, that quotation. So, for example, in my Bible, I wrote off to the side Isaiah 7.14 next to verse 23 because there's a quotation from the Old Testament. And then while I'm at it, I actually turn back to that verse in Isaiah 7.14, and next to Isaiah 7.14, I write Matthew 1.23. So I kind of – I'd love to talk to you about this, or I'm, I'm trying so hard not to go off in a rabbit trail because this is one of the examples of how to really – Build your own referencing system into your Bible. So what I do is I write that off to the side and I highlight it in green. 
And over time, as you read the Bible, you will see the green lines on each page. If you're in the Old Testament, you see a green line that you've written previously. You know, hey, there's a verse here that's found in the New Testament or vice versa, just as our episode today. If you have green lines that you've written previously on a page in Matthew or a page in Philippians or something like that, you will know, hey, there's a verse from the Old Testament here. I should pay special attention to it. Now, that's what's happening in Matthew one twenty three. We have a quotation of fulfillment. Something's being fulfilled. Something's coming to pass. And in fact, we see this happen several more times in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Matthew. Uh, those next examples, verse 5 of chapter 2 says this, They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. So it is written is kind of a variation of the, this took place to fulfill. Both are kind of uses of fulfillment. The idea of fulfillment, something coming to pass, something being shown to be made true of what was said previously. In that case, it says this, chapter 2, verse 6, he goes on to cite Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. You see it again in verse, let's see, verse 15 of Matthew 2. It's Actually, I'll pick it up in 14 because it's in the middle of a sentence. Verse 14 says, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. It says this, Out of Egypt I called my son. And that's from Hosea 11.1. 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. One more example. Verse 17 of the same chapter. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. In that case, we have an even greater uh, clue given to us by Matthew as he wrote that because he actually says what book of the Bible this is found in. In this case, Jeremiah. And of course, you go to Jeremiah 31.15, and the next verse that he quotes there is exactly from Jeremiah 31.15. Now, these are fulfillment uses of Old Testament scripture. The next one I want to look at, having covered that fulfillment, and again, you can find these, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. I'd really encourage you, uh, if you're looking for a new uh, book in the New Testament to read, pick up Matthew, especially if you have a hard time kind of making sense of the Old Testament. Pick up the book of Matthew because you'll find in Matthew constant references to the Old Testament, and I would really encourage you to kind of go down that uh, trajectory because you'll be able to kind of conversate back and forth and interact with the Old Testament and how Matthew uses it and this whole idea of fulfillment language. But the second one I've titled quotations. All of these are quotations, but this particular one um, is, well, let's just, uh, let me just explain it instead of trying to uh, Go ahead and, and mention it before getting to any, any verses. This example, quotations, as I'm using the phrase here, uh, quotations from the Old Testament, you can see this especially in the letter to the Hebrews. Now, the letter to the Hebrews, uh, some people think the Apostle Paul wrote this. Um, I don't think the Apostle Paul wrote this. In fact, there's a lot of people that don't think the Apostle Paul wrote this. Um and the whole reason I mention that is just because I'm going to keep saying the author of Hebrews, uh, just because I'm not convinced. It could, it could have been Paul, um, so I'm not against the idea that Paul wrote it. But just to say, if you're wondering why I keep saying the author, the author, the author, that's because we don't know who wrote it. We're not entirely sure who wrote uh, the letter to the Hebrews. There's no internal evidence uh, to suggest one way or another. So anyhow, the author of the letter to the Hebrews uses Old Testament verses as quotations. And what that means is not just the fact that he's just calling out verses from the Old Testament, but what it means is that here in Hebrews, unlike what we saw in fulfillment language in Matthew, here in Hebrews, the quotations are part of a theological conclusion that the author is arriving at. So 
what he's doing in the whole book of Hebrews, but especially chapter one, is he is making a case, again, a theological conclusion about the supremacy of Jesus. One of the ways that a lot of uh, pastors who uh, do a series of sermons through the book of Hebrews is some, they'll normally title if they, if they do titles of, of the series, they'll normally do it some, some type of uh, this phrase that Jesus is greater than. And that's really the, uh, the kind of theological conclusion that the uh, author of this book is doing. He's making a theological conclusion that Jesus is greater. Jesus is the supreme one. And who is he greater than? Well, in chapter 1 of Hebrews, he's making the case that Jesus is greater than angels, right? He's not, he's not, he's not an angel. He's not um, just an angel that's kind of rated higher up than the other angels, right? That, that kind of gets into the uh, Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism cults that teach that Jesus isn't God. Jesus isn't divine. He's just kind of a higher ranked angel than, than the others, and uh, or in Mormonism especially, he's kind of neither. He's just he's kind of a man that as, ascends to the to the point of being a god of some type, right? Well, that's not at all what the Bible teaches. And one of the ways that we can learn that is by looking here. And how does the author of Hebrews make this case? How does he come to this theological conclusion? Well, he quotes. Here we go with the second use here. He quotes verses from the Old Testament. In fact, there is literally an onslaught of quotations from the Old Testament in the first chapter of Hebrews. I'm looking at my Bible. I've spent quite a bit of time in the book of Hebrews over the last several years especially, and as I look at it, I have almost as many green highlighted lines as I do unhighlighted lines. I mean, it is just again and again and again and and let me just kind of read if if you uh if you will let me read verses uh 5 through 14 in fact let me back up for the sake of context i'm just going to read the whole chapter there's only 14 verses and since you're probably driving or something like that it would be dangerous for you to read as you drive so i'm going to read for you so here's what it says long ago verse starting in verse 1 long ago at many times And in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels Here's that case he's making, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then, so what you notice is he's just made a claim. He's made a claim that Jesus is superior to angels. The follow-up question, um, especially if you think of this as kind of like a courtroom style thing, the follow-up question is, okay, what is your evidence? What is your evidence of this conclusion that you're drawing us into, this theological conclusion that you're drawing us to? Well, here's how he does it. Starting in the very next verse, he says this. He poses a question. For to which of the angels did God ever say? And then here's what happens. Old Testament quotation from Psalm chapter 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then he says this. Or again, and now here's the second quotation from Second Samuel 7. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Next verse, and again, when he says the first, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, here's the third quotation from Deuteronomy 32. Let all God's angels worship him. End of sentence. Now he begins a new sentence, and now he contrasts angels and Jesus, the Son of God. Verse 7, it says, Of the angels, he says, and then he quotes Psalm 104, 
He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Next verse. But of the sun, he says. Fifth quote, Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. <laughs> Next verse. And. Sixth quotation from the Old Testament, this time Psalm 102. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And then, finally, here's the last one, the seventh quotation of this chapter. Verse 13, he says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, and here's the final quote, Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Concluding verse of the chapter, Are they, that is angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So you see, what the author has done in this opening chapter is an onslaught of Old Testament quotations. But notice, this is different from what happened in Matthew, where it was, this took place to fulfill, this fulfilled this. That's not what he's doing here. Instead, he's using Old Testament quotations to contrast the difference between Jesus and angels. Not only contrast, contrast the difference, but to show or conclude the superiority of Jesus over angels. So, in my opinion, this is one of the most uh, clear examples of this happening um, in the New Testament, and that is in Hebrews chapter 1. All right, so now let's move to the third and final one, and that is illusions. Now, illusions, we want to be careful about what exactly we mean when we say illusion because what I'm not saying is an illusion, right? An illusion, that would be with the vowel I, is a distortion of the senses. So you think about magic tricks, right? Or an optical illusion. That's not what we're talking about here uh, in uh, this conversation. We're talking about Illusion with an A, A L L U S I O N, and that is an expression. This is from uh, goodolddictionary.com. An expression designed to call something to mind without mentioning it explicitly. So, this is what we would call an indirect or passing reference. So, I suppose in some cases you could maybe make the argument that this would be an example of Old Testament referencing rather than Old Testament quotations. But I like to say that this is an example of quotations. That's because in the examples that I'm going to show you, you're still having an almost direct word-for-word -word quotation from the Old Testament. But it's structured in yet another way from what we saw in Matthew, in the fulfillment language, or in Hebrews, in the quotation or the theological conclusion language. So you'll find this happen, uh, for the most part, in the very last book of the Bible, that is the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, as it's been said, I've heard several different times, the book of Revelation is the book with the most Old Testament verses in it of any other book in the New Testament. Now, to bring this full circle back to one of the first things that I said, this may be why we also find Revelation to be one of the most confusing books in all the Bible— and why would that be? Well, it's because, as I mentioned earlier, so many of us are almost entirely unfamiliar with the Old Testament. We have the New Testament only syndrome. Uh, 
We live in a culture that sells New Testament-only Bibles. We have given the illusion, I-L-O, the illusion that the New Testament is the only thing that's important. Well, I hope that even in these two previous examples, you've seen that the New Testament is important, but you cannot dismiss the Old Testament because the New Testament writers regularly use the Old Testament to give us the theological conclusions, such as in Hebrews, or the fulfillments that are taking place, such as in Matthew. You cannot separate the Old Testament from the New Testament in terms of significance, and especially in terms of a correct and right interpretation. This could be one of the reasons why we have such a problem with Revelation, because although, surprising to many of us, it has the most Old Testament verses used within it of any book in the New Testament, it also is the most confusing because we have neglected and dismissed and discarded our own reading of the Old Testament. So we don't recognize this quite often. Well, to give you a little bit of slack, one of the reasons that you also might not notice this is because Revelation, unlike Matthew and unlike Hebrews, does not explicitly call out for us when an Old Testament verse is being used. And that's why they are allusions, because they're kind of a uh, kind of a passed over uh, reference point, right? They're indirectly quoted. There's no, this takes place to fulfill this language. But it is still inescapable, as you see throughout uh, your time spent in the book of Revelation. Just to call out a couple of them, in Revelation chapter 7, there is... Now, keep in mind that this is a highly symbolic book. There's there's many images, symbols, a lot of things happening here that, quite frankly, does confuse many people and very capable scholars, historians, theologians have divided themselves as to meanings for particular passages. So I don't want to downplay that and say that Everything's simple and everybody's making too much of a big deal because certainly there there is a lot of work to be done for a good understanding of Revelation. But we won't dive deeply into all of that. I just want to call out Revelation 7, you have the 144,000 of Israel being sealed, which I think, based on context, is symbolic. We're not talking about a literal group of 144,000 people literally and explicitly. There's symbolism happening here that's carrying through uh, the previous chapters. But what happens in uh, the rest of Revelation chapter 7, it says this, uh, starting in verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? That's speaking of the 144,000. And from where have they come? Verse 14, I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now that verse may seem like just a subsequent verse found in chapter 7 of Revelation. In other words, you might take that just at a face value verse of the conversation happening between John and this angel, or this elder, rather. But even in that phrase, they have washed their robes and made them white, we have two illusions happening. And you find both of those in the Old Testament, in two popular prophetic books, the first one being Isaiah. And, th- and this is really a good example of illusions because illusions are not always a one-to-one ratio of the words used. They often are, but not always. But they are also not restricted to one verse in the Old Testament. Now, I'll show you exactly what I mean here. 
So that phrase in Revelation 7 says, they have washed the 144,000. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Well, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 1, you'll see in Isaiah chapter 1, in verse 18, this is a different context. This is God speaking to Israel. He's rebuking them for their perversion of the things he's commanded them to do. God scoffs at their sacrifices, their festivals. He scoffs at the, the very things that he's commanded them to do because they're doing them outwardly, if you want to say legalistically in the right way, but in their hearts, in terms of true religion, in terms of a true affection and love for God, they're doing it tongue-in-cheek. They're doing it hypocritically. And so God is chastising them for it, and he says this in verse 18 of Isaiah 1. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Now that's interesting because we're not talking about an end times idea here in Isaiah, as is regularly um, used to describe what's happening in Revelation. But we do see the same language, the same concept being used, right? You have the idea of of sin, and sin is a scarlet thing, right? It's a, it's a, it's a scarlet stain on a white robe. And God talks about what's going to happen in his forgiving and cleansing work. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Go back to Revelation 7. These, the 144,000, have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's the cleansing and the forgiving power of God happening, as mentioned already in Isaiah, but fulfilled in what we see in Revelation, namely in Jesus Christ himself. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now there's a second illusion happening within this same phrase, and that is found in Daniel, the very end of the prophet Daniel, chapter 12 of Daniel. And it says this, talking about the resurrection, talking about the end of the days. And it mentions this in verse 10. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. So there's a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. The righteous, according to Daniel will be purified and will be made white. So you see that kind of like the one, two, three happening, right? You see it initially mentioned in Isaiah as an idea of the cleansing from sin. Daniel talks about it as being a reality, an ultimate reality for everybody. There are those who have been made white, and then there are the wicked who have not been made white. So there's a final judgment aspect uh, kind of extended in Daniel. And then there's an ultimate fulfillment. This is not that this took place to fulfill idea, but this is in the scope of the history of redemption or the theological phrase for this is redemptive history. That is to say the progression of God's plan of redemption starting in Genesis, after sin enters into the world, and God gives the promise um, that one is going to come and crush the head of the serpent, that would be Jesus Christ, predicted way back in Genesis chapter 3. And the progression of that, the progression of God's work of redemption, is what we would call the outworking of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. So I suppose you could call it the history of Christianity, but I, I prefer to call it redemptive history because it's talking about the progression of God's plan of redemption. Well, that's the fulfillment that I'm talking about, the full-scale final fulfillment where everything finds its rightness and its end. 
is in Revelation. They have washed their robes and made them white. What God had said initially in Isaiah, what he had expanded in Daniel, we now see the the center of that. It says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, who is Jesus. And then in Revelation 7, the very next few verses, it says this of those who have been made white. Now, this is this is why we really want to be careful about the use of symbolism in Revelation, because while in Revelation there's a mention of 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, I think that that is a symbolic use of language to describe everyone who believes and trusts in Jesus. 144,000 is kind of a symbolic number of completeness, but I think it's used to describe everyone, all of the redeemed. And the reason for that is because it's mentioned in Isaiah, but in Daniel it's mentioned as the final reality for everyone, whether or not we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And then in Revelation, it's mentioned explicitly as an end times idea. So that's kind of another conversation for another time, but that's an example of the use of illusion. Remember, not I for illusion, but A for illusion. And let me read in closing here in this episode, the next three verses of this chapter, really the end of the chapter seven in Revelation, it says this. Therefore, they are before, this is talking about the 144,000. Here's the conclusion that John comes to to close out the chapter. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's so many good things happening here, but I just want to mention that you didn't hear me read anything that said this took place to fulfill. You also didn't hear the theological conclusion language like we heard in Hebrews. But would it surprise you to know that all three of those verses I just read are taken directly from Isaiah? Verse 15 is taken from Isaiah chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And in that, and let me just turn here very quickly so I can read it to you. Isaiah 4, verses 5 and 6. It says this, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst, midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. And that's exactly what we see. He'll shelter him, will shelter them with his presence, and he will be before them. Next verse, verse 16, is taken from Isaiah 49.10. In Isaiah 49.10, we have this said to us. Isaiah 49.10 says, They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And we see that is, that is a direct quotation here. In this case, but it's not used the way that it's used in Matthew or Hebrews. This is an illusion, right? John doesn't call this out as a quotation. Nonetheless, it is a quotation given to us from Isaiah 49. And then verse 17, final verse, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. I mean, you see that all over the place in the Gospel of John, talking about Jesus. And then it says this, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That last phrase, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, 
we see in Isaiah 25, 8. It says this, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord, for the Lord has spoken. All right, folks. Well, that wraps it up for this episode. There's were three ways that Old Testament verses are used in the New Testament. The first one we looked at was fulfillment. We saw that in Matthew one. The second one was quotations or theological conclusions. That was in Hebrews chapter one, and the final one were those allusions, those more subtle, indirect quotations from the Old Testament, and we saw that in Revelation 7. You can find those all throughout the New Testament. That is just the writing style of the New Testament as it relates to the Old, and I hope that that really whets your appetite to dive deeper into the Bible, to read the Bible better, to have a better experience of reading, a better understanding, and to know what to look for as you read. I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I'd like to mention it again. If you really are interested in diving deeper, having a little bit of extra help, I would love to invite you to my free seven-day boot camp training of how to study a book of the Bible. And you can go to my website, betterbiblereading.com. You can see the tab that says free training, or if you're looking at the show notes of this episode, you can go to betterbiblereading.com forward slash episode 11 and you'll see the link right there off to the side of free training. You can click on that, and it is free, I promise. Seven days of email training of how to study a book of the Bible. I'm sure that you will find it helpful. I really hope that you will, and I'd love to get some feedback from all of you. Also, if you have found this podcast to be helpful to you, would you please do two things for me? First, would you invite a friend to listen to this. This really is a useless enterprise unless people are actually listening to it. I could put myself out there on the web and just be glad that I'm found by whoever is interested, but I really would like to have um, an intentional audience that I can trace and have interaction with. So if you know anybody that would be interested in this kind of a podcast channel, please uh, point them to this channel, point them to these episodes and uh, leave a comment. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on my website where you can leave comments on these particular episodes. I'd love to get back with you and have a conversation. And lastly, if you have found this to be helpful, one of the ways that you can help me publicize this is by going to iTunes and leaving a review for this podcast channel. I would be so grateful for that, and I really do appreciate all of you listening to me ramble on about these topics, but I do hope you found them to be helpful, and I hope that they give you a call to action in your Bible reading. Enjoy the rest of your day. This is Kevin Morse. Take care.